Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Today is uh, a little bit of a reflection. So usually when I preach, I go through a book of the Bible. We've been going through Ephesians, which is a book in the New Testament. But today we're doing a more topical sermon, and that means we're kind of looking at a topic throughout uh, large chunks of the Bible, uh, so kind of over the, the broad scope of the Bible. Uh, that, so that's really what a theology means. This sermon is called A Theology of Work. It just means, like, how does God uh, speak into work? Uh, and that comes, uh, this, this sermon comes from me going up to my old uh, seminary, Gordon-Conwell, uh, and uh, this week, and we talked about faith and business, so faith and work. How do the two intersect? Uh, and so I'm just sharing a little bit of what I learned uh, there uh, this week. Uh, and I'm also sharing a little bit from the reading. So I read two books in preparation for this. This was part of our studies. Uh, the first one is Timothy Keller's Every Good Endeavor. Uh, and then the second one was Redeeming Capitalism by Kenneth Barnes. Uh, so both are great books. I'm going to share some quotes uh, from both of them. I'm going to draw a lot from Timothy Keller's book. Instead of quoting him every time, if you want to know kind of what is from him, just go to the website, uh, my sermon. I have in notes, so you can look there. Um, but let me pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word um, comes in books, uh, so we can read them in letters like uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, but then it also comes through us, uh, comes to us to speak to topics, to to different things throughout the kind of the narrative of Scripture, uh, help us just come to a better understanding of the connection between work and our faith uh, and the Bible uh, and you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so take a moment and think about how you view work. Like, how do you think of your career, uh, your job? Uh, maybe, maybe the primary thing you do. Maybe you're the breadwinner in your house. Maybe you're a home educator. Uh, maybe you're a homemaker. It's whatever you do, career, work, how you spend your time. Uh, do you think of it as something you do to get by? Like this is something you do to get a paycheck uh, in order to do the other things that you really want to do, whether it's your hobbies on the, or on the weekend, spending time um, relaxing, or do you find some value in the work itself? So think about that. I mean, everyone comes from a, from a different place. Maybe some of us really enjoy our jobs. Uh, maybe some don't. Well, the Bible actually tells us that work in, its of, in, in and of itself is a good thing. So work is not a waste of time. Work is not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. And this, this starts all the way back in Genesis, that God created work to be good. In fact, in Genesis 1, what do we find? We find God creating the heavens and the earth. He's crafting. He's, he's being creative. He is making the, the universe for, for us to, to live and flourish in. And what does God say about this work? It says, God saw that it was good. And this phrase appears over and over again as he created each of the days and the, filled the earth. He says, God saw that it was good. In fact, the Hebrew word for work, melacha, appears in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. 
Now, this is a word that the, the scriptures use to describe God's work. But if you look other places in the Old Testament, this same word is found, and it refers to work done by humans, by people, by you and me. And that means we can both do work. God does work, and we do work. And if God does work, it's a good thing. Now, for those of you that kind of know the, the story of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, so the first two chapters of Genesis, are all about creation and God's relationship with humankind. And then something bad happens in Genesis chapter 3 where people sin and disobey God. And everything after Genesis chapter 3 is called the fall. Or it's life under the fall. It's a result of the fall. So notice, when... When does God create work? Like, when is work happening? It's actually before the fall. Work is pre-fall. Now, many of us feel like, oh, work is a result of the fall, like work is a result of sin. But no, work comes before the fall. And that means work in and of itself is good. And we see, like, God actually makes a a job description uh, for humans in Genesis chapter 1. He says this, it says, humankind may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This means that we as people are called by God to work, to do good things. God God gives us a job description. And that means work is a good thing. Work reflects the goodness of God's character and his creativity. And we see actually God at work most clearly in Jesus Christ himself. Like we see an example that we can relate to. Australian cleric Philip Jensen writes this. He says, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. And if you think about Jesus and his life, Jesus was a carpenter for about 30 years of his life. Right, well, I guess he probably didn't start day one when he was born, but uh, he, he worked for a long time. And then his ministry that the Gospels are about are only the last three years of his life. So obviously work is a good thing. Jesus does it himself. So that means work like being a carpenter is a good thing. Ministry work is good, but so is office work and everyday work and like the service industry, snow plowing and, and, and serving people and uh, blue collar work. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of kind of the sacred secular divide. Uh, it's actually a false conception of work. So this is a false conception that I'm going to put on the screen. First, we have sacred. This is what some people believe that the work and activity God cares about and calls people to do is things like being a missionary or being clergy or being pastors and Bible teachers and worship leaders, kind of uh, things surrounding the, the life and the ministry of the church. And the, the kind of activities that God really cares about is you reading your Bible and praying and, and, and Sunday and activities. 
And then on the other hand, well, what's secular? What's, what's not as honoring to God? Those kinds of activities? Well, being an engineer or a public educator or a nurse or a doctor, like God puts up with those things, but he's not really impressed by them. Well, this is false. This is not a true conception of work. In fact, what's more accurate is that it's all sacred. God cares about and calls people to do all kinds of work and activity. Engineers, missionaries, both are honoring to God. Educators and clergy and nurses and pastors and doctors, Bible teachers, all of these things honor God. All of these can be a calling, a way to serve and know God as we do them. So God has knocked down the wall between sacred and secular here. They're all sacred. Think of God himself, right? God is a gardener. (laughs) He's a scientist. He's a sociologist. He's an engineer. Like all these things reflect God's creativity. Work is good. But there's Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. Work is good, but it's not like it used to be. Because work becomes difficult, it becomes hard because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So humankind, what do we do? We have this perfect paradise, we're supposed to be working it and keeping it, and what do we do? We're placed in paradise and we just mess it up. Instead of, instead of choosing to work God's way and keep the garden God's way, and God made this command, he said you can eat of any fruit of this garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do people do? We say, well, we're, we know how to keep the garden better than you, God. We know how to do our work better than your plans. And we, we fall. We disobey God, and suddenly brokenness is introduced into creation, brokenness between our relationship between God and each other. And because of this brokenness, because of the sin, it leads to less effective and less beautiful work. In fact, God punishes Adam with this curse. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So work in and of itself still maintains goodness, but it's marred goodness. In other words, work is not as good as it could be. It's not as easy as it could be. It's hard. It leads to our death. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And this is all because we sinned against God, and we broke that relationship with God. It doesn't mean that work is bad, but that strain we feel when we go to the office on Monday morning, or we go on that trip or we have a difficult meeting or, or we're just exhausted by the, the manual labor that we're doing, that's a result of the fall. It's a result of the curse. It doesn't mean that what we're doing is bad. There, there's something that's affecting our work. In fact, it means that we can actually do work for the wrong reasons. We can do, we can do work for the wrong reasons, our, our, our pride. Because of this distortion, because of this distortion of work, we, we then end up at the wrong place. We say, okay, we're going to do all of our, our careers and we're going to do our jobs for our own glory to get ahead in our lives. Now, maybe some of you have heard of the Tower of Babel. This is one of the earliest, greatest building projects, right? Now, God commanded people to fill the earth 
back in Genesis 1. And by Genesis chapter 11, people have decided that they're going to do it their way. And so they, they come into one place and they build a massive city and they build a monument to themselves, this tower. Genesis 11 verses 3 through 4 say this. They said to each other, so this is the people at the city, come, let's make brick and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So here we find technology, we find work, and we actually find a spiritual connection. This was one of the Keller's points that I really liked, that they're building a tower to the heavens. That means there's a spiritual connection going on. People understand that their work matters, and yet they're distorting it. They're using it for their own fame, their own glory, their own pride. Work is not about being in relationship with God and taking care of his creation. Work is about me (laughs) and extending my name and my power and my glory. See, when we make work about ourselves instead of about knowing and serving God, we fall short of what the purpose of work is. We take something that is good in and of itself and we do it for the wrong reasons. Now, pride is different than satisfaction. Maybe you're thinking, well, I take pride in my work. What's wrong with that? I think that's different. That's that's satisfaction, saying I want to do a good job. That's absolutely right, and having a sense of accomplishment and feeling good about that. That's not what I'm preaching against. C.S. Lewis explains a little bit of of pride in mere Christianity. He He says this, now what I want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. So if we use work to elevate my name above the name of others, suddenly work is being distorted and we're using it for the wrong purpose. We're using it to elevate ourselves. But what's the opposite of this? We just talked about this last week. Well, the opposite of pride is humility. In the book, uh, Redeeming Capitalism, the author Kenneth Barnes, who was actually one of the teachers up at uh, Gordon-Conwell this week, he he tells the story of Lars Sorensen. He is the former CEO of a Danish drug-making company, Novo Nordisk. And in the 2015 Harvard Business Review, they ranked him as the top executive worldwide. All right, so he's CEO of a big company, and he's named the top executive. And Barnes uh, writes this. He says, despite the company's exceptional performance... Sorensen was paid a fraction of what a similarly ranked executive would make in the United States. His rationale was the fact that while he did not make as much money as a U.S. executive, he still made more money in a year than most of his employees would make over the course of their entire careers. He also believed in creating a cohesive work environment and huge wage disparities can cause resentment that is not conducive to collaborative working and decisions by consensus. Furthermore, despite being a publicly traded company, Novo Nordisk used triple bottom line accounting. That's accounting that combines financial results with 
environmental and social concerns. So they care about money, but not just money, to assess its annual performance. Perhaps Mr. Sorensen summed it up the best when at the close of an interview with Harvard Business Review, he said this. He said, I should have said at the beginning that I don't like this notion of the best performing CEO in the world. That's an American perspective. You lionize individuals. I would say I'm leading a team that is collectively creating one of the world's best performing companies. That's different from being the world's best performing CEO. It's a very big difference. I love that quote because it shows so much humility. Here he is, he's being exalted, his name is being lifted up, and he says, it's not about me. It's about my team. It's about us. This is a wonderful example of humility in the workplace, which is what God is all about. So we can do work for the wrong reasons, our pride, but we can also do work for a really good reason. That's God's glory. We can do work for the best reason, God's glory. So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, we have lots of stories of people at work. I think they're talking about Job tonight. Job was a wealthy businessman. It's one of the oldest books in the Bible. Jacob, Jacob was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. David, King David, he was the most famous king in Israel. He joined the military. He became king, so he joined the government. And then if you go to the New Testament, we have Peter. He's a fisherman, small business owner. And then we have Paul, who's a tent maker, uh, an entrepreneur. And like I said earlier, Jesus was a carpenter for most of his life. If we look in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, he wants people to do work. He also tells people, you need to do work. Don't be lazy. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says this, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. I love that Paul just kind of slips that in there. See, work is a good thing. Paul doesn't say this just because he's like, people need to be hard workers. There's a whole theology of work behind this. In fact, Paul makes one of the most amazing statements on life and work that we started our message with in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This means that what is important to God is not necessarily what you do. Of course, you can do bad things. I'm not saying you can do unethical work that will then glorify God. We shouldn't count one job as higher than another. It's not about what we do. It's about how we do it. It's about our hearts, about our attitude before God. I think if we say, you know what, how can I, how can I do my, my, my work in a way that brings God honor, that's just going to change the course of how we do work, right? That's going to naturally lead to doing work with excellence, doing a good job. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to doing work with integrity, having character, making the right decision when no one is looking. It's going to be ethical, and it's not going to be purely, I just need to serve myself and get ahead it's also going to take into thought the, the needs of the community, the needs of those around me, the common good. How can I care for myself and my family, but also how can I be taking care of my coworkers? How does, how does our company and how does our business impact our, our wider community? Are we harming our community? Are we helping our community? 
What are things that we're doing if we're trying to honor and glorify God? We can do work for a great reason, God's glory. But there's a problem. (laughs) There's a problem, and it's rooted back in Genesis 3. See, because of the fall, because of that initial burst of sin from Adam and Eve, you and I don't naturally want to do things for God's glory. We want to do things naturally for our glory because our hearts are bent towards sin, towards disobeying God. I don't want the common good. I want to take care of me and my own. I want to do my own thing. That's what we naturally want because of sin. And I'm pointing the the finger right at my own heart. And so we need something to come and change us so that we have a change of hearts, so that our hearts are transformed and so that we can do work for God's glory. And this is where the gospel comes in. Gospel means good news. See, the gospel, it transforms our work and gives it eternal worth. So here we find, again, the big story of the Bible. And Keller breaks it down into to three points that we've already reviewed, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the whole world is good. God created everything like perfect. There was no pollution, there was no, there was no war, there was no sin, there was no brokenness, no lying, no, no, no cheating, no, no death, there was no hurting, there was nothing. It was all good, it was all perfect. And the, the sweetest part of it was that humankind was in relationship with God. That means we could walk in a garden with God. We could be in relationship like with the creator of the universe. (laughs) The whole world is good. This is the first kind of act of the big gospel story. But then what happens? The whole world is fallen. The whole world in Adam and in Eve disobeys God. And suddenly down to our core, we have a broken relationship with God. And it breaks our relationship with those around us. It actually breaks our relationship with with work and our everyday activities, how we're supposed to do things, how we're supposed to do our studies and, and, and go about our jobs. But the, the, the gospel is good news. See, there's redemption. The whole world is going to be redeemed. That's the story of Christianity. That's why I'm up here tonight preaching because Jesus has stepped down into the world to redeem this world. That means to set it right. God sent his son into this world like Terry prayed early, earlier as, as a child. He took on humanity so that he could do human things, so he could be a carpenter and, and, and uh, I don't know, take out the trash and, and go about life. And yet when Jesus did those things, he did it in a way that was just different than the way we did it because he did it without sin. Just imagining, what is it like to take out trash without sin? <laughs> Jesus came to redeem every aspect of our lives and it cost him everything. It cost him his life. Jesus had to, to die on this cross, not this cross, but a cross, to pay the penalty for that brokenness throughout all of creation. Like he had to, to, to pay the ultimate sacrifice in order to, to allow you and me to 
get back into relationship with God. Because if we're broken and God is pure, like how can we be in relationship with God? How can we know God unless someone has paid the penalty for our sins? And we can't do it because we're broken. (laughs) Jesus did it. And he invites you and he says, repent of your sins and believe in me. Believe in me and I'll, I'll forgive you, I'll save you. I'll make you new. I'll make you whole. But Jesus isn't isn't just interested in like our souls. (laughs) Jesus isn't just interested in your spirit. He's interested in every part of you, your entire life, what you do, your work, your your your, how you live, your relationships. And it's not that God is like this this controlling kind of manipulative God who has to have his way all the time. It's that God knows how it's supposed to be. God is still in that good. God has not fallen. And so when we do things, well, we, we do them our way, but, but when we're doing them, we're actually doing them the wrong way. We're, we're doing things our way instead of God's way. And God says, well, I know better. <laughs> I know the perfect plan. I want to transform each and every part of your life. The gospel transforms our work and it gives it eternal worth. The gospel transforms a job into a calling. The gospel transforms work done for my pride into work done for God's glory. The gospel trans work, transforms work done for me into work done for us, for the good of others besides myself. The gospel transforms mundane tasks into tasks that are eternally valuable. So I believe that when, when we go about our jobs and our activities and our callings as if unto the Lord, the Lord is somehow going to keep that forever. <laughs> uh, sometimes we get this like image, maybe it's like a Netflix image that like the whole world's gonna burn. <laughs> God's gonna destroy everything. And so it doesn't really matter what we do with our lives. And that's such a crazy belief. <laughs> the Bible does not tell that story. Yes, there will be an ending of things. There will be a kind of a passing away, but it'll be a passing away of, of sin and of death and, and destruction. And it'll be a renewal of all of creation. This is what Jesus is going to do. And so as we go about our everyday lives, we can live the gospel story in our jobs. So if we go to the, the narrative, this narrative of the whole world being good, the world has fallen, the whole world is, world is going to be redeemed, we can think about our jobs and say, okay, so how can I bring a desire for redemption to what I do with my life? Are there aspects of my job and of my career that, that are kind of still functioning in that fallen place, and how can I bring redemption, the message of Christ Jesus, to my work? And that's, uh, we all work in so many different areas, uh, so many different vocations and, and, and places that God has called you that I can't answer exactly what that looks like for you, seeing how God can redeem your workplace. And it's not that just that you're going to go in and talk about Jesus. Maybe that's what you'll do. Maybe that's part of it. God might have a, a broader vision in mind for the redemption of your work. Maybe it's already at a really good place. Maybe it can get better. I wanted to, to share an example of, of the gospel narrative 
changing at workplace. So this, this comes from Keller's book. He says, uh, early in his career as a school administrator, so this is an education example, uh, our friend Bill Kurtz started to see that this gospel storyline, what the world should be, how it has gone wrong, and the hope for the future, it gave him a better vision for education in poor inner city schools. All the individual stories of brokenness, of problems at home, of no sleep and an inadequate nutrition, of gangs on the street and drugs in the building had reinforced a culture of rebellion and hopelessness in the schools. The attitude about school for many of the kids was, why bother? He wanted to bring the hope of the gospel story into his work. Now, in the field of urban education today, there are many competing storylines of what education should be what its main problem is, and what needs to change. As a matter of fact, education itself is often viewed as the savior for the ills of poverty and systemic injustice. Students are subjects of continuous analysis as one strategy or another is applied to their educational experience. Bill found that the gospel gave him a more comprehensive understanding of the problems facing the schools and a hope for redemption that incorporated some of the best practices of his field but did not idolize them. His approach has been holistic with the recognition that the gospel could actually shape the culture of a school community. In 2004, he launched a public charter high school in Denver to serve a very diverse student population. One grade at a time, he helped create a culture of shared accountability and success in the school. Every morning, students gather along with their teachers for morning meeting. Morning meeting provides an opportunity for the community to celebrate success through weekly awards by giving shout-outs to one another for acts of service and living the school's values and by sharing stories that point to a story of hope. But the brokenness is addressed as well. To help change behavior where students fail to live the values of the community, students participate in public apologies where they hold one another accountable and support one another to live the school's core values better. If a student or teacher is late to school, they apologize to the rest of the community. He recognized the student's innate need to be known but held accountable and created an environment where no one could be lost in the cracks. While good teachers have certainly been key, Bill attributes the school's success to its culture and their shared singular goal to get 100% of its seniors into four-year colleges. The school has seen amazing success Every single senior in the school's history has earned a four-year college acceptance. This first school has grown into a network of six top-performing schools across Denver. The gospel can transform our work. The gospel gives our work eternal value. How can the gospel impact your workplace? How can the story of redemption redeem something just a little bit about the place where you serve. Uh, does anyone here want to dive deeper into Keller's book? I would love to give a, a copy away. So if anyone would like this copy, it's free. I'd, I have one. I have an extra one. Uh, please come talk to me. I'd love to give it away. Now, in closing, uh, I want to give you an invitation. Uh, but this invitation is not for tonight. It's for two weeks. Two weeks from now, so this is the Saturday following Thanksgiving. Uh, the Chris Lake, a uh, guy connected with Frontline Ministry, the Veer Institute, he, Veer Institute, he'll be here preaching. 
So we'll be talking a little bit more about employment and work and how we can honor God in our everyday lives. Uh, But I want to give you an invitation. So when we uh, kind of commission our elders and our deacons here, we do something special, right? We have our elders come up front and we pray over them. They, they recite some, uh, some things that, uh, you know, with, from the slides about what the commitment they are making, and our deacons do the same thing. Well, we want to do that for, for anyone who wants to be commissioned on behalf of the church in their jobs. So if you're saying, I want there to be a turning point in, in my life, I want my job to be an act of bringing God's glory, and, and I, want to, I want to do it unto him, and I want to really be sent on behalf of the church to, to go about my every day, then I hope in two weeks you'll come back, and in the service you'll come up front to do that. And there'll be a special moment, a ministry moment for that. But think about it. Pray about it. Don't write it off. And don't jump into it too quickly because it's a, it's a commitment to say, do I want to go about my work intentionally trying to bring God glory every day? Doing the best job I can, doing the most ethical job I can, doing the, the, the job for the common good for others. I hope you'll pray about that so that I can pray for you, so the elders can pray for you and commission you uh, to, to bring God glory in your workplace. The gospel transforms our work and gives it eternal worth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for work. Thank you that what we're doing, if we do it unto you, is somehow mysteriously going to have eternal impact. May that carry us forward through tomorrow and into our week work week, Monday through Friday. We want to serve you. We want to know you. We want to walk through our workplaces with you, taking care of those in need as if unto you. Thank you that Jesus was a carpenter. Thank you that he worked. Thank you for the work he did on the cross to save us from our sins. Lord, I pray for the offering. Would we use it to do good work? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.